Mark chapter 1, verse 1. We'll start there. We're going to look at verse 1 through 13. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 reads like this. I'm reading out of the ESV. The beginning of the gospel are two terms that we want to look at here from verse 1 to begin with. Gospel and the beginning of the gospel. What does this word gospel mean? Calvin defines the term like this. The gospel is the message of the salvation exhibited in Christ's historic life, death, and resurrection. In other words, what Calvin is saying is God, the gospel is the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ and the present ministry of Jesus Christ as it is summed up in His death and resurrection. All of the teaching of our faith centers on this one event, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of Christ's earthly ministry leading up to His death and His present ministry following His resurrection. Everything that we teach, our systematic theology is an attempt to explain the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection. Our biblical theology is an attempt to understand the communication of Christ's death and resurrection. Our practical theology is an an attempt to show how Christ's death and resurrection changes us and transforms us into the image of Christ's death and resurrection. And we are conformed to His death and His resurrection. In Christ, we suffer for His sake. And in Christ, we will be resurrected in the likeness of His power and glory. The term gospel then is resurrection. The term the beginning of the gospel then refers to the record of the beginning of His earthly ministry leading up to His death and all that we learn from that record, theologically, biblically, and practically. And so this afternoon, we're going to be looking at the beginning of the gospel from Mark chapter 1 in order to be refreshed and encouraged to again place our faith in Christ Jesus and to find all of our strength and all of our... So there's five points from Mark chapter 1 that I want to look at. And number one is this, Jesus Christ is the gospel. Again, look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This verse points us to what the gospel is really about, Jesus Christ and His person and His work. In short, the book of Mark reminds us that Jesus Christ is the gospel. He's the mystery of God's plan and the sum of all things, highest love and the desire of all of the nations revealed. Come near to us. The gospel can therefore be summed up by the simple expression of his name, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There are four things that we want to notice from his name. Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. Here we have the man, the Messiah, the Son, the only God. I want to say a few things about each of those categories. Jesus is the man. The Bible testifies to the importance of Christ's humanity. This is something we can't forget. It's easy to forget. The Bible says there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It also says that God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man, by the man that He has appointed. And God has proved this by raising Him from the dead. This idea then that Jesus is a man is of highest importance to our faith. 
If Jesus is not true man, then Jesus is not a true Savior. But Jesus is the man. He is true man. A few things about His humanity. Things that you know, but things that we must remember and keep in mind. Things that are precious and dear to us. He was born of a virgin. He was born of a woman. Born under the law in order to us in our weaknesses and in our sinfulness. He is true man. He was sent by God in the fullness of time to take on human flesh and to dwell among us as one of us so that he might bear the curse of the law for us. In other words, Jesus is the sinless and the spotless man. He's the man that none of us can be. He's righteous. He pleases the Father. He's holy. He's undefiled. And he came. To... He was given a human body so that he might become the perfect sin offering for his people. He was given a body so that he might suffer for the sins of the people. And so he loves us. He's one of us and he's holy and sinless and he's holy and sinless in his love for God, but especially his love for us. He's one of us. He's true man. And Jesus is a true man. This means he suffers as a man. A few things about his sin that we want to remember. In suffering as a man, Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of his people. Jesus Christ as a man then puts the whole question of wrath and sin to rest. He is a Savior. Therefore, Christ shows us that God sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and doesn't leave us to the helplessness of our sins and the demands of the law. In Jesus Christ, God has come near to us and God really is with us. In suffering as a man, Christ suffered in the flesh so that we might cease from sin. In suffering in the flesh, He enabled and empowered us to put sin to death in our bodies. He empowers us to say no to sin and to its sinful pleasures. Christ suffered in the flesh. In suffering as a man, Christ learned obedience through what He suffered so that we might imitate Him. So that we discourage when the Father uses sufferings in our life to chastise us and to discipline us. Which, of course, the Father does because He loves us. Because His wrath has been removed. He puts us through suffering so that He can conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. So that we can grow in obedience and holiness. Therefore, the importance of Christ's humanity, all of this is because of Christ's humanity. And so the importance of Christ's humanity cannot be understated. So Christ is the man. He is true man. Secondly, though, He is the Christ. Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just any man. Mark calls Him the Christ. This is a special title. It is a reference to the fact that He is the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of mankind. He is the Messiah predicted since the beginning of the world. You can see this if you compare Christ to Adam. Adam is a type of Christ. Adam is a kind of prediction of the coming of Christ. So let's turn our attention momentarily to Adam. Remember Adam in the garden. By creating Adam in God's own image, God declared Adam to be a son. By giving Adam dominion over all of the creatures, God made Adam a king. 
By tasking Adam to work and to keep the garden, God made Adam a priest in charge of it not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God made Adam a prophet, a preacher of righteousness. This title, Christ, then, refers to his sacred identity as son and his threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. Christ is the new and the better Adam. Christ is the true image of God come down from above. A son not by creation, but by nature, by generation. A prophet over God's word. He is priest over God's temple. He is king over God's world. As such, he is the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, who will save his people from their sins. As prophet, he exposes their sins. As priest, he purges their sins. As king, he conquers their sins. This means that Christ is mediator between God and man. He brings fallen man together with God, together through Christ Jesus, the mediator. Well, he's not just the true man and the Christ. He's the son. Jesus is no mere man. He is true man But he is no mere man. He is also the eternal Son of God. Mark calls him the Son. Mark is pointing us to the fact that he is a divine person. The mysterious, incomprehensible, glorious trinity that we worship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the second person. He is the Son. He's a divine person. In a holy, righteous Wonderful, majestic, unlike anything we've ever experienced in this creation, communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is the Son. The significance of this is that He knows the Father can reveal the Father perfectly. He reveals God to us. Jesus knows God like no one else knows Him. And He can bring us to God like no one else can bring us to God. He is the Son. But then fourthly, Jesus is also the only God. Jesus is no mere man. He is true God. True man, true God. Mark calls Him the Son of God. He's not merely a divinely appointed Messiah. He's not merely a divine person. He is one with the Father. He is equal with the Father in power and authority and glory. He is to be loved and worshipped and obeyed just as the Father is. There is only one God, one God in three persons. And Jesus is one of those three persons. And He's equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit and He's worthy to be worshipped. To honor Jesus then is to honor the Father. To bow to Jesus is to bow to the Father. To believe in Jesus, to obey Him, to hope in Him is to believe in, obey, and to hope in the Father. Whoever honors the Son honors the Father also. And so the beginning of the Gospel is this, the revelation of the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is the message that Jesus is true man and true God come for our salvation, for our rescue from sin. He stoops to us out of our sins, and to bring us into everlasting peace, life, and worship with God the Father. What this means for us this afternoon is that to find salvation, 
to find a right relationship with God, we need only to receive Jesus Christ in His fullness. We bring nothing. We come empty-handed and we receive from His glory and His fullness everything that we need. He brings us a sufficient Savior. Number two for Mark chapter 1. Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Look with me at verse 2 and 3. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 says this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. These verses are taken from a couple of different Old Testament passages. Those passages are these, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and Exodus 23, 20. There are similarities between all of these passages, which is why Mark combines them in this one passage here in Mark chapter 1, verse 2 through 3. Let me talk a little bit about some of the similarities between these passages. In each of these Old Testament passages, God sends a messenger to His people to make her. In each of these Old Testament passages, God sends a messenger to make a way for His own coming. God isn't just sending a prophet, but He's promising that God Himself will come in all of His presence. There's an expectation that God Himself is coming. In each of these Old Testament passages, God sends a messenger to predict what God will do when He comes, when He arrives. In the Exodus passage, He saves His people, up the weak and the humble, and He lowers the proud. He throws them down. In Malachi, He brings mercy and justice together. When God comes, He will demonstrate the fierceness of His wrath and at the very same time unleash the power of His mercy. And so these verses here stand as representatives in a sense. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, in a sense, represent a summary of the whole Old Testament message. All of the prophets were saying this. There is an expectation in the Old Testament that there was a day coming when God Himself would appear on the scene. And when He came, He would right all wrongs and save those who have trusted in Him and waited for Him. This idea would come that God would come is the whole expectation of the Old Testament. If we were to look at the Old Testament, we could ask ourselves some questions that illustrate this point. Did God create the world just to let it fall into sin? Was that His purpose? Was that His plan? Was that an end? Just the fall? How could it be just that? From a good and a righteous and a holy God. Did God create the world just to let it fall into ruin by the devil? Or did God let the world fall into the power of sin and the devil because He had some plan for written by men? And yes, He did. Did anyone really believe that God really intended for the redemption of the world to be accomplished by mere men in the Old Testament, by all the types and shadows? Was Adam really ever a Savior? Was Noah really ever a Savior? Or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or David or Solomon? Did anyone really believe that God would restore the world through some earthly institution like the old law or the kingdom of Israel? All of these things were pointing to something more wonderful and more glorious. 
Was God ever going to save the world through a system of works or through the righteousness of mere men? No, of course not. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. If there was a law that could bring life, then righteousness would be by the law. No. God Himself had to come. God Himself had to appear on the... Who else would it be? And yet in the Old Testament, it was a mystery. It was hidden. It was dark. How would God come? How could God come? No one could imagine it. And yet for all of those who had eyes to see, it was what they hoped for, they looked for and expected. So there's this expectation you see in the Old Testament that someday God would come to the earth and through earthly means, but Himself coming and save sinners. And so there was an expectation of a day of grace, a day in which mercy would triumph over judgment. And what this means for us, brothers, is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. That's the meaning of Mark chapter 1, verse 2 through 3. Send my messenger, I'm coming. What this means for us today is that Jesus Christ comes near to us in what is Christ, and God in Christ comes near to us in the prophetic writings. The only way to God is through Christ, and the only way to Christ is through the prophetic writings. Which means for us today, the preaching of those prophetic writings. So that Christ comes near to us as His written Word is preached. Christ comes near. It's a beautiful idea. What is written, therefore, is our only infallible and reliable guide to life in Christ. And Christ comes near when this Word is preached. And so this is the beginning of the Gospel. Number one, Jesus Christ is the God-man who brings us back to God. And number two, He comes near to us today in His Word. This is the Gospel. This is the beginning of the Gospel. Number three, Christ is for sinners. Look with me at verse 4-8. through eight. Mark chapter 1, verse 4 through 8, John appeared. We're speaking about John the Baptist, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And he says this in verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I want to focus on verse 8. Certainly this passage teaches us something about what it looks like when Christ comes. God is coming. He's coming in the preaching of his word. It's not what you expect. It's something that we apprehend by faith. You say to me, Christ comes near in the preaching? You've heard plenty of sermons. You wonder if, you, you wonder if that's really true. <laughs> and verse 4-7 through seven is a reminder that He always comes humbly. He comes as one who is, wears a leather belt around His waist and eats locust and wild. That is never quite what the flesh expects. It's not something that we apprehend by sight. It's something that we apprehend 
by faith. But what I want to focus on here is verse 8. He, that is Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Baptism. The Bible says that God's purpose is to glorify His grace to the praise of His glory. Central to God's glory, then, is His grace. God is not worshipped apart from the revelation of His grace. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 130, verse 4, there is forgiveness with God. God is not truly feared until forgiveness is received. And so let's take a step Let's take a few steps back as we think about John's baptism. Let's take a a few steps back and see that the gospel is prefaced by the ministry of John, John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist? Who is this man who eats honey and locusts? John is the man sent by God, the text tells us, and he's given this new Old Testament rite called baptism. Now take that in for just a minute. This new Old Testament rite. You see, John the Baptist is a kind of last Old Testament prophet. And, and, he, and he's been sent by God. And he's given this new ritual, baptism. Israel had never seen anything like this. But it was from God. So it's an Old Testament rite. Water baptism. The purpose of this rite is to call Israel to repentance in expectation of the forgiveness of their sins. This is why we read in verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So there's a pattern here in this Old Testament rite. This Old Testament, John's baptism, there's a pattern that we want to notice here. It's a pattern of obedience first and then forgiveness. Repent, what we see in the gospel is something much different. In the gospel, the pattern is reversed. It's baptism into forgiveness, and repentance is the fruit. In other words, the gospel is the message that sinners need most. It is the message sinners have always hoped for, in a sense, and longed for, and looked for the power to obey, the power to repent, the motivation that they need. The law could never, the law could do all day long was demand from a sinner righteousness, which they've already forfeited in their sins. And they could never find in themselves the strength to conjure up to obey. All the law could do was demand, demand, demand. But the people of God always understood the real power to forsake their sins and to obey God came from a prior knowledge of his love and his grace. And that this, you can see this, for example, in David. If we had time, we could go look at a number of Psalms and we could look at it in Solomon, his son. We could look at a number of Proverbs. There's a theme that recurs in many of David's Psalms. He hoped in God's steadfast love and faithfulness. His mercy and His truth. He knew God was loving. He knew God was gracious. He knew God's purposes extended beyond external laws imposed on unchanged people or even judgment and condemnation. God had a plan to glorify Himself by saving His people from their sins. 
And so David writes beautiful passages like the one that we find in Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins is covered. And this serves as a basis for what he says later in verse 8 of that same psalm. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you So John the Baptist comes preaching this last Old Testament rite of water baptism with the promise that there was soon coming a better baptism. (laughs) A baptism not of water, but of the Holy Spirit. A baptism into the forgiveness of sins that produces the fruits of righteousness. And so in a sense, as we look at John's baptism, it's a summary of the Old Testament law. It's a call to repentance in expectation of the forgiveness of sins. But it foreshadows then something much better, although very different. A baptism in the Holy Spirit, a New Testament call to receive the free offer of the forgiveness of sins that can produce the fruits of righteousness, that can break the power of sin. What this means for us is that Christ... And the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For powerless sinners. For helpless and hopeless and condemned and lost sinners. Christ is the power of God for salvation. Therefore, brothers and sisters, renew your faith. Cast yourselves again this afternoon upon Christ Jesus. And receive the free offer of the forgiveness of sins. And if you're not in Christ Jesus, that the forgiveness of your sins and what it means to have the dominion of sin broken in your life. That's the call of God this afternoon. And so Jesus Christ is the God-man who brings us back to God. Jesus Christ is the one who comes near to us in the preaching of His Word. And Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to powerless sinners, to all who will believe in Him. The beginning of the Gospel. Number four, Christ is our righteousness. Mark chapter nine, verse, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 1, verse 9-11. through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And so we see here the heavens opening, John's baptism, and the, and the Father expressing His pleasure in Christ Jesus, His acceptance of Him. This episode contains two main ideas that we don't want to miss. Follow me on this first one. Jesus was baptized with John's baptism. We just spoke about John's baptism, that last, that last Old Testament rite. Now, we said John's baptism was an Old Testament rite of repentance, an expectation of the forgiveness of sins. But remember, Jesus is sinless. <laughs> so when Jesus is baptized, it's not a baptism of repentance. So what is it then? Well, it's a baptism into the repentance that was being demanded, do you understand? In other words, it was a baptism into the obedience that was being demanded. If you ask somebody to repent, what you're basically doing is demanding that they obey. Christ is baptized into the demand for obedience. The whole law. Repent of their sins. Every sin. 
And so Jesus is, Jesus is being baptized into all obedience, into all law-keeping. The baptism, therefore, has a different meaning for Jesus than it did for Israel. For Jesus, it represents a fulfillment of the whole Old Testament system of righteousness. It represents the righteousness which could earn the forgiveness being hoped for. Repent, and it essentially meant this. What Israel had been called into, Jesus fulfilled. He fulfilled all righteousness. And then we see this doubly when we see the witness of the Holy Spirit and God the Father. The Holy Spirit descends upon Him like a dove, accepting His baptism. And the Father says, this is My beloved Son. This is the One who is holy. This is the One who is righteous. This is the One that I love. This is the One I'm pleased with and accept because He's obedient. Because He's righteous. Jesus is therefore the fulfillment of all righteousness and He pleases the Father. What this means for us is that Christ is the message of the fulfillment of God's righteousness, not by us, but by Himself. And therefore, the Gospel and Jesus Christ call us to renounce our own righteousness, try to gain some kind of righteousness, to turn away from our own works, and to receive Jesus Christ in His works and in His righteousness by faith. The Gospel provides righteousness for free to helpless and hopeless and hurting and broken sinners. It does not simply demand righteousness like the law does. Now, the Gospel does demand righteousness. That's the whole end of the Gospel. right? Sinners being saved from their sins. The hope here is that they come out of their sins. But it doesn't just simply demand it like the law did. It demands it and then provides what it demands as a free gift. And this has the effect of changing people in the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. It produces the fruits of righteousness. So the Gospel is this. It's Jesus Christ, the God-man, come to bring us back to God, who comes near in the writings and the preaching of His Word, and who offers Himself as a free gift of righteousness to all who believe in Him. And number five, and lastly, Jesus Christ is our victory over sin through His own sufferings leading to glory. Christ is our victory. He's our victory over sin. He's our victory over sin at the cost of His own sufferings. But the end and the hope of all of this is glory. Look with me at Mark chapter 1, verse 12 through 13. Verse 12 through 13, the Spirit immediately drove him out, that's drove Christ out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Well, there's a lot there in just those two verses. Very concise passage, but there's a lot here for us to chew on. This passage is ultimately setting up a. Let's go back and revisit Adam in the garden for a moment. In the garden narrative, Adam was given a beautiful and a lush garden, the Garden of Eden. You remember this from Genesis 2. In the garden was every good tree. It was all good for food and good to eat. And all of the animals there in the garden were tamed and they were under Adam's dominion. It was a perfect world without sin. 
And Adam was given a commandment by God to test his obedience. A temptation which, if he had overcome, would have ushered in an age of bliss and eternal life for all of mankind. Do you remember the Garden of Eden and Adam? Ah, but you remember that Adam did not pass that test. Adam sinned. And because he sinned, he was cast out of that garden. And angels were sent to keep him. Seraphim were placed at the garden borders to keep Adam from coming back in lest he take of the tree of life and live forever in his sin. And the whole world was plunged into darkness, into sin, into misery, and into ruin, to condemnation, bearing the heavy burden of the wrath of God and of guilt. And the lust trees became a wilderness, just beasts. And a world, a place that was meant for God's worship and for the dwelling of angels forever, became a temple for man's sin, idolatry, and licentiousness. Adam failed. He sinned. And so here we are, sinners. So it's appropriate here. At the beginning, we see a new and a better Adam has come. See Jesus Christ in His garden in verse 12 and 13. You see, that's the whole idea. Christ's garden has been made a wilderness by the sins of Adam. See Him among the animals which have been turned into wild beasts. See Him given a commandment, for He was driven out by the Spirit. See Him being tempted by Satan. Not like Adam was in the convenience and hardship. The other Gospels tell us that He, was, he fasted for 40 days. He was severely tempted. And see Him overcome. See Him do what Adam failed to do. Where Adam failed, Christ prevailed, as they like to say. See Him then ushering in a new age, a new world, a gospel age, an age where the forces of darkness and the power of Satan have and the angels are no longer sent to keep man out. But they've been sent to minister to man. The new man, the better man. A token of the eternal age to come. A token of glory. So there's a lot there in those two verses, isn't there? And so the Gospel is this. It's the message of Christ's total victory over sin and darkness and the beginning of a new creation. For us then, is that the Gospel is the victory that Christ has already won for us and the beginning of a new life in Him. A life in which our sins have been forgiven and purged and cleansed. A life that comes to us in the power of His own resurrection that teaches us how to turn from our sins and to strive after a holy and righteous love for God. And so let me conclude uh, this afternoon very simply like this. Jesus Christ is the God. He's the end of the gospel. Christ brings us back to God. Christ comes near to us in the preaching of the word. Christ is the power of God for salvation. Christ is our righteousness. 
Christ is our victory and our new beginning. Brothers and sisters, renew your faith in Christ. Cast yourselves upon Him. Feed upon Him. Receive all that you need from Him this afternoon. And if you're outside of Jesus Christ, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Our great God and our Father, we give You thanks once again for Your many mercies to us. We're especially thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for the preaching of Your Word. We're thankful for Your faithfulness to Your promises. Here we are, sinful men and women. Who are we that You should come near to us in the preaching of Your Word? Dear Father, we ask that You would take this Word by Your Holy Spirit and teach us to apply it. Renew our faith. If we lack faith, give us faith. And we pray these things in Christ's name.